Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, and welcome to History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan. And in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness. And we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Marcus Tanner, a writer specialising in Eastern and Central Europe, the Balkans and Celtic countries. He's the author of Croatia, a history from the Middle Ages to the present day, published by Yale University Press. With his rich knowledge of Croatia, Marcus is the ideal guy to lead us on a journey into the heritage of the historic city of Split. Together, we'll explore its Roman pomp, its ups and downs as empires tussled for control from the Middle Ages, and its turbulent 20th century history. We'll also meet some of the figures who played important roles in the development of Split and discover key places to visit for insights into its heritage. Marcus, welcome. Thank you. Perhaps you could start by telling us a little about your connection to Split and what you find so fascinating about the city. Well, it's a pretty extraordinary place. It's the only city in Europe which exists within a semi-intact Roman palace. I mean, there's absolutely nothing like it in Europe and possibly in the world. You can see the palace still there and a city has grown up within it. So it's really, really a remarkable entity because you would have thought that the people who moved into this deserted palace would have demolished it or removed most of the existing stuff that they found to build new things. But the people who moved into Split were very sort of conservative and they built in and around the palace. So that's what's so astonishing. You can really see how a Roman emperor lived in a modern city. Well, that's a a lesson for urban planners today. Let's hop back just a moment and say, what do we know about the earliest history of of this region? We don't know the absolute origins, but in the pre-Roman period, there was this uh, group called the Illyrians who lived there. And around the 4th century BC, the Greeks start establishing colonies up the Adriatic. And they've left an interesting legacy, of course, in place names, because most of the islands of opposite split, like Hvar, Korchula, and Vis, those are derivations of Greek names. So Hvar comes from Pharos, for example, and Korchula has the same sort of origin as the word Corfu. So the Greeks certainly left a legacy in, in place names, and then these little Greek ports or sort of fishing villages were then taken over by the Romans when they conquered Illyria and formed the province of Illyricum. So Rome's taken over this region. How did Split come into being? You mentioned the Roman walls. Can you tell us a bit about how it was created and how it developed under the Romans? 
Split wasn't created under the Romans really at all. There may have been a very small settlement there. There was a Greek settlement called Asphalatos, which is obviously what how the Romans got the name Spalatum. They've uh, typically knocked off the A and changed the OS or, at the end to a UM. But their main settlement nearby was not Split. It was in Salona, which is now a kind of suburb of Split. And that became a, a sort of the main city in this Roman province. But then the Western Roman Empire starts to crumble. There are more and more attacks on these exposed Roman settlements. And in the end, the people of Salona upstakes. First of all, they flee to the islands, but then when the coast is clear, they come back and they think, well, we don't want to go back to Salona. It's too dangerous. So what about that huge deserted palace down the road? still there, that looks a lot safer. So they go to the, the palace of the Emperor Diocletian, who built this structure to retire in. He retired in 305 and had lived in the palace for about 10 years. After that, it had served as a kind of military camp until the Western Empire had more or less sort of folded in the 5th century. Beyond that, we really don't know what happened to it. But it was enormous, so it didn't dissolve. It had walls 70 feet high. They were seven foot thick. So long after it was deserted, or presumably deserted, it remained very intact and suddenly became the ideal place for people to live in a rather turbulent time when there were all these uh, barbarian tribes kind of marching around what used to be the safe Roman province. Suddenly, it, it was a very attractive option to go and live in this gigantic fortress. So as you say, it was it was more of a citadel than we might think of a palace with, with vast walls that you can still see today, and in fact, a, a big chunk of the city still within it. So the, these people who had fled to the islands and then returned after these attacks in what we might call the Dark Ages, what happened following that period? Obviously, we don't necessarily have a complete coherent history, but how did Split develop during the Middle Ages? As I said, we don't really know what happened after the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire, which we're talking about the 5th century. So, you know, for about 100 years or so, we really don't know much about this palace. But we do know that the people of Salona had moved in definitively by about 650. And it's within that kind of period, 650-700, that the bishops of Salona, which is now a Christian town, have moved to Split. And they have turned the old mausoleum into the cathedral. So that is why you have this very extraordinary looking cathedral in Split. It's a strange octagonal building with not many windows, which is supposed to be just a place for a body to lie and a tomb. And that is now the central part of the cathedral. And what they did was sort of stick a bell tower on top. And so you have this very odd looking cathedral, which has a claim to be, and a pretty good claim, to be one of the oldest cathedrals in Europe, if not the oldest, because it was it's definitely been in use since about, well, 700 at the absolute latest, possibly earlier. There's an irony there, of course, given how Diocletian was famous for persecuting Christians. I don't know if that was, was lost on the bishops when they moved their site there. It, it wasn't lost on them at all. Not only did they turf out Diocletian, whose remains, unfortunately, are, we have no idea where they went, probably into the sea. 
not only did that, they named the cathedral after one of the most famous victims of Diocletian's persecutions. That was in the last 10 years of his reign before he, he retired. So they named it after St. Domnius Sveti Duje in Croatian, who was supposedly killed. He was supposed to be a bishop of Salona and supposedly suffered horrible tortures under Diocletian. Although, as so often with this period, you have conflicting legends because the church has also, in its ancient chronicles, liked to kind of insist that St. Domnius was an associate of St. Peter, which would have made him 300 years old when he was martyred. He was either an associate of St. Peter and was sent to Dalmatia in the first century, or he was a bishop of Salona under Diocletian and was killed. So, yeah, no, they were very well aware of the irony and sort of thought, oh, well, uh, one of your victims is now going to have your tomb. So now we have this bishopric in, in Split and a growing community there from the 8th century, presumably. How did Split develop over the centuries following that? What was really interesting about the Romanized population of Illyria is how kind of resilient they were. Because although you have the Croats moving into the Balkans at this stage in the sort of 600s, they're not able to penetrate these coastal towns at all. So although one thinks of Split now as a sort of very Croatian, almost an uber-Croatian place, I mean, it's a sort of centre of Croatian nationalism, certainly was in the 1990s and 2000s. But at this time, it really remained a sort of Latin polity. Long after the empire that had created it had dissolved. That's what's so extraordinary about these communities. And nor was it the only one. Further down on the coast, you have Dubrovnik. The people of Dubrovnik had to move from their original town, Epidorum, and then they chose a safer place. It was sort of a bit marshier, a bit more inaccessible. And all the way up the Adriatic coast, you have these little sort of Latin towns where the population speak a sort of cod Latin and they preserve a very distinct culture that survives for a, really about a thousand years. You can't talk about it merging into the kind of Croatian hinterland until the Middle Ages at the very earliest. And that creates kind of a, a lot of tension between these towns and the Croat Slavs who are living in the interior, because the Croat princes who become kings by the 10th century, well, they start declaring themselves kings. They're looking at these towns and thinking, well, we want to have authority over them, but they can't really exercise any authority on them. Um, they remain kind of self-governing communes. Their leader is known as the Podesta, and they have a council and they have complicated statutes regulating everything. So they've really re preserved a, a kind of funny little Latin world that survives for an awful long time. And presumably at this time they were relatively prosperous through trade, through fishing? Absolutely. And you can see that they filled up the whole of the old palace, which is pretty enormous. Diocletian's palace covers about seven acres. It's pretty big for an early medieval town. But fairly early on, you can see the Croats kind of moving out and building another section to the west, so that what we now think of the old city of Split is not just Diocletian's palace. 
there's a whole new sector. And the fact that they had to build beyond the old city shows that the population was increasing all the time. Split as a, as a polity was effectively independent for something like a thousand years. How did that period come to an end and what happened next? Well, what happens is the Croats become stronger as time goes by and they start kind of claiming an authority of all these coastal towns. But they have a big problem, really, because this Latin culture of these towns is too big to be absorbed. It's not really a matter of conquest. It's a matter of accommodation and living side by side. And you have some very interesting records from the sort of 10th and 11th century of Croatian princes donating churches and land to split, which doesn't suggest that they have a very aggressive attitude towards it. They sort of want to kind of be a part of it. And things only really change with the ending of the Croatian kingdom. That proves an entity that just can't survive the sort of growing competition of the early Middle Ages. Hungary to the north is getting stronger. Venice to the sort of northwest is getting much stronger. They're both kind of eyeing this rather underpopulated territory of Croatia and Dalmatia. And when the last Croatian king dies, there's a sort of succession battle. And then the throne of Croatia is claimed by Hungary. So the Hungarian king invades the north of Croatia, then decides it's a bit too much to kind of swallow. It's quite big. There are all these difficult sort of tribes So instead of annexing it to Hungary, there's a deal reached in 1102 whereby the king of Hungary becomes the king of Croatia. You have a union of crowns, a bit like what happened between England and Scotland after the death of Elizabeth, but before the two countries are united. You have two entities with two crowns, but one king wearing them. So now this whole region of Croatia, and including Dalmatia, is theoretically under the control of the King of Hungary. But Hungary is very far away, and the Hungarian kings don't really interfere much in the workings of places like Split, and they don't pop up very often. Some of them come all the way down to get crowned separately as kings of Croatia in Beograd, which is a little town sort of north of Split. And there are some kind of odd occasions when the Mongols invade Hungary. The king of Hungary flees all the way down to Dalmatia and locks himself up in Trogir, which is another town in Dalmatia, where very fortunately the Mongol leader suddenly dies and the army melts away. The people of Trogir are sort of spared what happened to most cities who were besieged by the Mongols. So they got lucky. So occasionally these Hungarian kings popped up, but you can't really, if you wander around Split today, you won't see lots of evidence of Hungarian rule, even though theoretically they're sovereigns. And Hungary itself has its internal problems, and Venice is just a constant threat. The Venetians are sort of occasionally grabbing towns on the Dalmatian coast, and then losing them and grabbing them again. And they would definitely like to have split. In 1420, they managed to persuade the king of Hungary to sell Dalmatia to them. And that is a real sea change in the fortunes of split. That is a really seminal moment. 
now the Venetians are here, they want to control things. They're not so far away as the King of Hungary. So they really do move in and Split's autonomy is greatly reduced. It now has to service the needs of Venice. Along with the Italian arrival, you have sort of Italian speakers. So the Venetian takeover in 1420 is the beginning of a kind of 500-year tussle over what is the identity of this city. Is it Italian or is it Slavic? And that is a battle that's not solved till 1945. What was the impact of that Venetian takeover on the city, physically, politically, culturally? Culturally, it's enormous. You've already had this sort of tradition of a Latin, Romance-speaking population in Split. And yes, you've had more and more kind of Croat-speaking Slavic moving in. But this old tradition merges in with the Italians. So you get the creation, not just of a kind of Italian ruling class, you get an Italian population. There's a Venetian kind of population that now plants itself in split. And it's pretty big. I mean, they're not the majority, but there are lots of them. And they remain the elite in split for half a millennium. I mean, split doesn't get its first Slavic Croatian mayor until the late 19th century. Uh, if you look at the long list of the archbishops of Split, you'll see a hell of a lot of Italian names. The occasional kind of Croat gets in, but basically they're all Italian until the late 19th century. So the cultural change is enormous. And of course, there are also physical changes. You have new fortifications and there's a big building in, in, in the walls of Split called the Venetian Tower, which is an example of the kind of fortifications they built. It's a bit hard to get a handle on whether it was a kind of benign period or not, because, of course, Croatian history tends to look very unfavourably on Venice and what it did. You know, as far as they were concerned, it was a denationalising kind of force. It suppressed the Croats, it suppressed the Slavic element. Everything was directed towards enriching Venice. So it's a bit hard to call about whether it was a good period or a bad period. And there were other forces in Europe growing over these centuries, of course, to the north, the Habsburgs. What happened to Split after the, the power of Venice waned? Well, the Venetian reign is very long and very durable. But as we all know, everything sort of started falling to pieces with the arrival of Napoleon, who was a great disruptor all over Europe. And Venice is overrun by the sort of Bonapartists. And so with the capture of Venice comes the capture of its huge Dalmatian possessions. Napoleonic kind of forces take over in 1797. And that's a really revolutionary, startling development because Napoleon sets up a kind of mini kingdom in Dalmatia called the Kingdom of Illyria. They close monasteries and convents and convert them into educational establishments. They build roads. The first newspaper is put out. And interestingly, it's put out partly in Croatian. And Napoleon has a kind of totally different attitude to this province. They're not so favourable towards the Italians. You get the stirring now of a kind of Croatian national identity in Dalmatia. So big things are happening under Napoleon. And then... Of course, in 1815, Napoleon's been defeated. And what to do with Dalmatia? Well, you can't give it back to Venice. 
Uh, Venice is now ruled by Austria. So uh, what else are you going to do with it? So it sort of, it kind of goes to Austria by default. So again, while the Croats tend to be very down on the Austrian period, as they were also on the Venetian period, <laughs> saying nothing happened and it was a time of misery. Well, yeah, that's true to the extent. Nothing much did happen. But it's also because it really wasn't a sort of integral part of the Austrian Empire. It didn't fit. It came from a complete, it was a very Italianized world. And it was just sort of, there wasn't kind of much that the Austrians could have done, I think, with Dalmatia. It wasn't a very workable settlement. So during this period, split is in principle ruled from Austria. The people there obviously have to go on living. They, they have trade, they have commerce. What, what's it like in split at that time? What are the sort of key moments in the 19th century? Well, it isn't good because the traditional industries like shipbuilding, the Austrians don't invest in it and possibly they didn't have the money to invest in it. I mean, they're blamed for the collapse of the shipbuilding industry. But of course, you get steamships coming along and suddenly they're absolutely irrelevant. So one of the main kind of economic livelihoods in Dalmatia just kind of collapses in the mid-19th century. And then everyone turns to growing grapes because it's like, well, maybe we can kind of get in on this. I mean, they've always grown grapes, but this becomes a huge industry. But then what happens? You get the vine disease coming over slowly. It starts in France. And then, of course, eventually it reaches Dalmatia, absolutely destroys the whole economy. I mean, you have huge numbers of people now depending on wine. The Austrians certainly don't do anything very useful on that front because one of the very unpopular things they did in Dalmatia was agree a trade deal with Italy, which allowed Italy to sort of import wines into Austria for very little money, which was of no help, whatever. But these vines were doomed anyway because of this terrible disease, phylloxera. And what you have at the end of the 19th century is mass emigration. So there's really nothing to do. This is all blamed on Austria, but the Austrian Empire wasn't particularly rich. It looks rich when you go to Vienna and Budapest and things like that. But there was a kind of chronic lack of money to invest. So precisely what the Austrians could have done to alleviate the situation in Dalmatia, it's not that clear, really. But you do get mass emigration and you get these islands that were once very populous becoming very empty. And you get a huge flow of people going to South America in particular. If you go to Argentina and Chile, it's amazing how many shop signs and you'll see Croatian names on them. And you think, well, they must be recent people who came. But no, they, they mainly came in the 19th century. And of course, at the start of the 20th century, that marked a real watershed moment in Europe and particularly for Austria-Hungary with the, the First World War. How did that affect Split and how did it emerge from that period? Well, this was a very tumultuous time for Split because in World War I, you have England and France and Russia on one side. You have the central powers of which Split, is, Split and Dalmatia are apart on the other. But you have a lot of neutrals and one of the main diplomatic activities that's going on in 1914-15 is a desperate kind of bidding war for these neutral countries. What can we do to get Romania in? What can we do to get Italy in, in particular? Italy is a sort of ally of Austria-Hungary, but it's a very unpopular alliance in Italy. And they're considered very biddable. 
And what England and France do is cook up a secret treaty in 1915, Secret Treaty of London, which said, well, if you come in on our side, what about having the whole of Dalmatia? You've always wanted that. There's a lot of Italians there, a lot of Roman stuff there. So you, and of course, this is hugely appealing to Italian nationalists. So Italy goes into World War I thinking, we're going to get Dalmatia. We've been promised it. And that all looks fine until 1917, when the Russian revolutionaries start publicizing the secret treaties that the czars and the other imperialists have cooked up. And they say, oh, look, Dalmatia is supposed to go to Italy after the war. It was all in a secret treaty. And this is hugely embarrassing because it was supposed to be kept under wraps. It causes absolute uproar in Dalmatia. The last thing the majority population, who are Slav, want to do is join Italy. So you have enormous tension over this. And then come 1918, the Italians actually start landing in Dalmatia and saying, well, we, this is what we were promised. But it all goes hopelessly awry because you now have America has replaced Russia as the, the ally of Britain and France, and the American's high-minded president, Wilson, says, oh, secret treaties? No, I don't like the sound of that at all. We're supposed to be in, in this war for the benefit of mankind. This is all about democracy. So suddenly this whole idea of secret treaties is, is completely discredited, and the English and the French have to sort of abandon it and go, oh, wait, well, we didn't really mean that. And so the peace treaty in Versailles, Italy doesn't get Dalmatia. And this is a massive, massive blow. And they're sort of still kind of turning up in their navy, hovering alongside these ports, trying to kind of get the local Italians in Split and other places to kind of agitate for union with Italy, which they do. But then this causes kind of street battles. You have kind of effrays and kind of a bit of violence and fisticuffs and split between 1918 and 1920. And until really the Treaty of Rapallo between Italy and Yugoslavia, the new state of Yugoslavia, under which the Italians very reluctantly have to evacuate Dalmatia. But it's an enormous blow. A lot of Italians start leaving Dalmatia, although... There isn't a kind of complete exodus, but the beginning of the end of Italian Dalmatia is in 1920. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So at this time, we have the, the new kingdom of Yugoslavia formed in the 1920s. How do the next couple of decades play out? Obviously, we know what's coming in 1939. How did Split fare over those years of the 20s and 30s and then into the war? Well, Split was quite interesting because in the rest of Croatia, there's enormous discontent with this creation of Yugoslavia. The Croats in the north had lived in Austria-Hungary and they had kind of retained certain privileges and they had become very Habsburgized. So the idea of being ruled from Serbia 
was for them a kind of gigantic come down. But it's very interesting that in Split, there's a different attitude. The kind of fear of being absorbed into Italy created a very different mood there. They thought, oh no, Yugoslavia is better than that. Anything's better than being part of Italy. You see quite a lot of kind of communist activity down there as well. You know, it starts getting the nickname Red Dalmatia because of there's a, it's, it's a sort of left-wing political atmosphere. There's not the same problem that you have in the rest of Croatia in terms of the Yugoslav state. So what was the impact of the Second World War on Dalmatia and splits particularly? There's an enormous impact because the Italians come back. They thought they'd got rid of Italy finally in 1920. They'd sort of said, oh, right, thank God that's the end of Italy. But then what happens in 1941 is that Yugoslavia goes into the Second World War on the side of the Allies. Germany is outraged. They thought they had an agreement with the Yugoslavs that they would not do this. They bomb Belgrade pretty savagely, invade immediately. The Yugoslav state falls apart almost overnight. The Croats, in the, especially in the north of Croatia, rebel immediately. They won't fight for the Yugoslav state. The king flies, the government flies away. It's total collapse. And Mussolini now sees his great chance he is a huge enthusiast for this idea of an expanded Italy, including Dalmatia. How to achieve that? You install your own government in Zagreb and they do your bidding. So Mussolini is really the, the moving figure behind the establishment of a, a fascist state in wartime Croatia. He chooses the man, Pavlic, and he wants to get in his government before Hitler kind of does something else there. He's worried that Hitler might reach an agreement with a different group of people who don't favour Italian interests. So uh, this man, Antti Pavlic, who's a sort of exiled fascist, he's been living in Italy. He's bust in to Zagreb and said, right, here's your new fascist state. You take it over. But unfortunately, of course, you need to pay a certain price for this favour that we've given you. And he's handed a list of territorial concessions that uh, the new fascist Croatian state has to make. And they're absolutely monumental. They're really the loss of Dalmatia. So they occupy Split and the rest of the coast throughout the war, which is good news, however, for Split's Jewish community, because the Italians are not so interested in anti-Semitism as the Germans. And whereas the Jewish communities in German-occupied Yugoslavia are almost all killed, Italy's takes a, a rather different view and splits ancient, small but very ancient Jewish community, doesn't come through intact because with the fall of Italy in 1943, the Germans do arrive in Split. They're only able to kill half of them, which by European standards is quite low. And how did Split emerge from the war? Obviously, we know the, the grand story that Tito's brigades, the partisans were fighting. What happened to Split at the end of the war and after that? The end of the war situation in Split was really dire. I remember meeting an old journalist in the 1990s who was from Split and who said that you know, he was free fought with the partisans and when they entered Split, he said the city was absolutely starving. I mean, there just was nothing to eat. It was pretty dire. But the partisans had very strong support in Dalmatia. As I said, there was this kind of quite big communist movement there. There wasn't the same kind of 
type of Croatian nationalism that you had in the north of Croatia. There wasn't the same suspicion about the kind of Yugoslav-ness of the partisan movement. It helped that Tito, the head of the partisans, was himself a Croat. The partisans had been based in Vis, opposite split, long before they kind of captured the rest of the country. So I think the partisan takeover in Split and Dalmatia was pretty popular. And then, of course, Tito did uh, what the Croatian nationalists had always been arguing for, certainly since the 1840s. He united Croatia and Dalmatia into one republic. So finally, you have this united Croatian entity, which has been a long-standing demand of the Croats since, since the early 19th century, which doesn't satisfy a lot of Croats elsewhere who don't want to be communists, so that's the end of that. But it has to be said that in Split, I think there was a lot of support for the new regime. I mean, you don't have a huge middle class. You don't have a huge capitalist class. Dalmatia's always been poor. In the 1930s, peasants from Dalmatia would go and work on the fields in northern Croatia, where they were treated as a bit of an underclass. And their sort of poverty was a subject of jokes. So I think you know, as in the other parts of Yugoslavia that were very poor, the communist takeover wasn't really such a threat. So after the war, we have this wider Croatian republic, including Dalmatia and, and split within that. But of course, it was part of the federal state of Yugoslavia for half a century. So how did split fare during that period as part of Yugoslavia? And how did it emerge from that? Fared very well, because uh, the communists really concentrate on developing towns and cities, then they're not interested in the countryside at all. They don't collectivise it as they did elsewhere in Eastern Europe in other communist countries. So the peasants retain their holdings, but they sort of deal with that by just really ignoring it. Everything is, is done for the cities. So Split grows enormously. I mean, it's got about 160,000 people in it today. And that would have been about 20,000 at the turn of the century. So you're talking about an 800% increase, much of which happened in the communist period. Yeah, it suddenly becomes a, a real metropolis. And of course, it sucks in a huge number of people from over the old Dalmatian border in Bosnia. They start moving into Dalmatia in very large numbers. And they kind of bring a different culture with them. They have a much more sort of hardline Catholic Croat nationalism. So, yeah, the sort of culture does change in Split. It becomes much bigger, but it also becomes a kind of more definitively nationalist city, which is certainly the kind of form it, it took in the 1990s. And, of course, that period notoriously is after the fall of the Iron Curtain. The fallout was Yugoslavia broke up and there were a series of terrible conflicts there. Can you tell us the part that Split played in those conflicts and how it was affected? Well, Split was hugely affected. It was very close to the front line in 1991. You know, Yugoslavia falls apart. Croatia declares independence. Suddenly there's a kind of war between Croats and Serbs, which is not familiar territory for Dalmatians. There's been this kind of 20% Serbian population for, for an awful long time, since like, way back into the Middle Ages. But the conflict between Split was always with the Italians. So it's a kind of a new, a bit of a new thing, really. You can't talk about, I mean, I remember during the war, journalists from the UK were always talking about a centuries-old struggle between the Croats and Serbs, ancient tribal hatreds. Well, 
But this wasn't really true. There wasn't an ancient tribal hatred in Dalmatia at all. This was a kind of new phenomenon. For them, there was more of a struggle between Croats and Serbs in the north. But not here. So it was. I think it was a kind of a shock to suddenly be put into this war with, with the Serbs. But it was very vicious. And it got pretty close to split. It got even closer to some other towns like Šibenik and Zadar and anyone old enough to remember, Dubrovnik was besieged and surrounded. I mean, the Serbs were practically on the walls. So Split wasn't as affected by the war as those cities were. They were literally pummeled. Split wasn't physically damaged, but it became the epicentre of the sort of war in Dalmatia because it was the hub city. So everything radiated out from there. So yeah, there was a lot of fighters from Split taking part in this war. And the capital of the rebel Serbs in that part of Croatia, in Knin, that's, you know, that's only up the road from Split. So the front line wasn't very far away. And it's really the end of the old cohabitation between the Serbs and Croats and Split. You know, most Serbs have to leave. And it becomes very anti-Serbian in a way that it hadn't been before. That hadn't been a kind of huge issue in Split, but it becomes very, very anti-Serbian in the the 1990s. The war is really close. It's really raw. A lot of people from Split die fighting in the war. So although the city isn't sort of physically wrecked, also, you know, it's partly cut off. The railway goes from Split, you know, went up through Bosnia and into that direction. So that was all cut off. I mean, it did feel isolated and besieged, even if less imminently threatened than, say, Dubrovnik. And of course, into the 21st century, after the war had ended, places like Dubrovnik became enormously popular with tourists and Split now, I think, as well, has a lot of appeal for visitors, largely because of that incredible palace that Diocletian led. I'd like to ask you to share five sites in Split each of which reveals something about the city's past and perhaps explain a bit about why each one's important. Everyone should start with Diocletian's tomb, which is the cathedral, because that is such an extraordinary edifice. And you won't see a cathedral like it. It's one of the smallest and the oldest in Europe. And it's really quite odd to sort of go into its rather dark interior, rather sort of small and claustrophobic. It almost feels like a sort of Byzantine church and to think that this is where um, the tomb of Diocletian lay. So that is the first kind of port of call, I would say, to anyone going to split. The next, of course, is when you exit that cathedral, you come right out into what's called the peristyle, which is a huge outdoor porch with high columns and arches. And this is where Diocletian, when he came down from his private apartments, which had been facing the sea, Here he would have been met by prostrated visitors in his retirement year. It's very clear that Diocletian didn't intend a modest retirement, if you look at this kind of extraordinary square. It's very extravagant. The columns are very, very high. Some of the columns come from Egypt, which is where Diocletian had served part of his military career. And, of course, the other interesting thing that's scattered around the, this peristyle are a couple of sphinxes 
So it looks as if Diocletian brought at least 12. I think they found the remains of 12 or 13 sphinxes in, in Split, only one of which is totally intact. And it's sort of parked on right outside the cathedral. Clearly, that's not where it originally was. People think they probably were in front of his tomb, maybe as a sort of guardian sort of thing. Now, of course, the Peristyle is a perfect setting for operas and concerts. It almost looks like a sort of stage set, but no, it is real. The third site I think people ought to go and have a look at, I'm sort of going in chronological order in terms of Split's history, is if you then walk a little bit outside the palace through what's called the Golden Gate, you'll come to an enormous statue of what looks like a kind of wizard from Lord of the Rings, kind of Gundalf figure, but no, it's uh, actually a bishop. Bishop Gregory of Nien, and it plays a very interesting part in the history of Split because Gregory of Nien pops up in history in, in 925 in the ancient church records, wanting the his little bishopric, which is a kind of Croatian diocese, to be the, the main centre of Christian activity in this part of Dalmatia. So he wants the, uh, the bishopric moved from Split to Nien, which is where he is. And he also wants mass in the vernacular and the use of the Croatian script, which is not quite the same as Cyrillic, but they, they had their own script called Glagolitic. And the records of the Synod of Split say that all these uh, suggestions were firmly rejected. And not only that, but Gregory's bishopric in Nien was abolished for good measure. So this was like the Latin people of Split saying, no, we're not going to be run by Slavs with beards in little villages, thank you. We are loyal to the Bishop of Rome. We honour Latin and the Latin ways. So it's very interesting, that story. And it was called totally forgotten but for centuries. But then, of course, it was dug up in the 19th century and became a huge issue for the Croatian nationalists. Oh, my goodness, Gregory of Nien. He was an early Croatian nationalist taking on the Italians. Those are the people who always tried to do us down with their stupid kind of ways. So Gregory of Nîmes suddenly becomes, even though he's sort of mentioned twice in a sort of ancient chronicle, suddenly becomes this enormously important figure and a very patriotic and hugely important sculpture of the period, Mestrovich, who is a very big figure, not just in the art world, but in politics. He casts an enormous statue of Bishop Gregory looking particularly angry. He's sort of gesticulating madly and he's looking extremely cross and he's obviously denouncing the Latins, brackets, Italians of split. And this is put up in the Yugoslav period. Quite interesting that the you know, Yugoslav government didn't mind this at all. So Mestrovic gets to put up his enormous statue and he puts it up in the peristyle right in the middle of the sort of iconic symbol of Latin split, Roman split. And it's a gesture. It's like, you crushed us then, but now we are the dominant force. Come 1941 too, when the Italians arrive, like, what is this appalling statue of this ridiculous man doing in the middle of Roman split? The Roman split is, it epitomises the Italian connection. So the statue is dismantled and dumped outside city walls. But very interestingly, when the communists take over, they put it up again. Can't always imagine them putting up statues of Christian bishops. But obviously for the Yugoslav communists, Gregory of Nien was, was really, 
interesting as a Slavic patriot. So they don't sort of mind that, and they stick this statue up, and in a different place. It's put up outside the city wall, where it still is today. What you'll notice is the toe sticking out of his cloak, his huge toe. His toe is very shiny because uh, over the decades it was a sort of became a symbol of good luck. So everyone going past the statue always rubs the big toe of Gregory of Nîmes. I think the next place I, I would like people to go to, and it's probably one that they will miss if they're just following a usual itinerary, is the synagogue which is tucked into the city wall, very close to the cathedral. It's part of a little tiny network of streets inhabited by the split Jewish community, which is one of Europe's oldest Jewish communities, I would suggest, because there are menorahs and other Jewish symbols carved right into the walls of Diocletian's palace, which date back to the beginning of the foundation of the city of Split. I have to say we don't know an awful lot about the Jewish community in the Middle Ages, but we do know that they had a synagogue because it burnt down around 1500 and they built this new one, which is what's there today. So it's one of the oldest uh, Sephardic synagogues, I think, in Europe. It's been continuously there since 1500s. It now looks sort of Baroque because it had a big makeover in the 18th century. And it was home to a very interesting community who, who produced a, a remarkable number of prominent people, given how small it was. And there were some real characters in that community. One of the most famous was called Daniel Rodriguez, who came from Spain and built the split Lazaretto, which was a kind of sanitation centre. Venice was very careful not to allow goods to kind of pass to and from the city until they were sort of disinfected. So you had to have these sort of so-called lazarettos where everything would have to wait for a certain quarantine period and the merchants would have to wait with them. So you didn't just have a storeroom, you had to have a little kind of hotel above it. And of course, another very interesting split Jew rather later on was Vid Morpurgo. He was uh, much later on living in the 19th century and he opened the first bookshop in Split and also the first kind of people's bank, which was designed to let ordinary people save little amounts of money and get out of the hands of the kind of vicious moneylenders. So he was a much-loved person and sat as an MP in Parliament. And the Split Jewish community doesn't seem to have attracted any kind of opprobrium, which is very interesting because one always thinks, oh, very Catholic city, surely they're very anti-Semitic. Well, they didn't at all. They, sort of, they didn't have that issue. So everything sort of went on very peacefully for the split Jewish community until, unfortunately, um, the Germans arrived. But it still survives. There's still about 100 people left in split from the community, more than enough to maintain the synagogue. And then I suppose after that, yeah, one interesting thing to, to have a look at is the Venetian Tower. So you can see that the Venetians took the defence of the city very seriously. There was a lot of commercial activity going on in Split at the time, even if it was mainly about benefiting the mother city. So I suppose not that much of the money remained in Split. But there are other testimonies apart from that tower to the Venetian presence, which show that there was sort of money being made at the time. There are a few kind of palazzos in the old city, which are very Venetian. And the town hall is another piece that looks like a little tiny replica of a Venetian town hall. It's pretty humble if you compare it to the one in Venice itself, but it, you can immediately see from the wind style of the windows, has that very characteristic Venetian look. 
The last thing I think we should go and have a look at, although it's not necessarily the most beautiful thing in Split, it's one of the biggest, is the National Theatre, which I have to say looks... It looks a bit like a railway station. It reminds me of Budapest Railway Station. So it's, it's not the most necessarily the most attractive building, but of course what's really interesting about it is it was built in the early 1890s and it's the symbol of the Slavic-Croatian triumph in Split. You've had the last Italian mayor, Mr. Biamonti, who was mayor for 20 years and who did his absolute best to make Split as Italian as possible. He's voted out in the end because Austria-Hungary is becoming more democratic. And the Italians have managed to retain control of Split for so long, basically because the franchise was minute. But in the mid to late 19th century, with the expanding franchise, the Italians just can't hold on to it in Split or in most of the other cities. So the, the Croats finally take over and... When the Croats take over, one of the first things to do is build a national theatre, which is one of those things that sort of 19th century nationalists were always extremely keen on, because you need a big stage setting for your nationalist operas and things like that. So they put up this huge building in 1893, and that's a sort of symbol of the final triumph of the Croats in Split. Wonderful. Well, that's uh, that's my next itinerary to split sorted out. And finally, Marcus, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to the city? Well, I suppose anyone going to split, um, although I wouldn't say this is exclusive to split. I mean, you know, this is a city on the sea. The Dalmatians are a sort of people of the sea. So you should really not miss the fish restaurants of split. And one of the very popular dishes that you'll find all over Dalmatia is squid risotto. That's a kind of very much a staple dish. And that might well be consumed with a glass of the famous Gurk wine, which doesn't come from Split. It comes from Korchla, just over the water. But I would say it's a very interesting Dalmatian speciality. And again, as I said, it's not one of those wines that would necessarily transport to home. You know, it has to be drunk in setting. It's got a very sort of strong aniseedy flavour. You need to drink it in the heat when it's cold. But I think no one going to Dalmatia should miss out on the fish. That was Marcus Tanner. His book, Croatia, A History from the Middle Ages to the Present Day, published by Yale University Press, is available now. Thanks, Marcus, and thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Mm-hmm.